No, it's roundabout <laughs> MTJC. I'm sorry. I apologize to the listeners, whether they're in their car or in their house. It doesn't matter. I'm sorry, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 134 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we also have Tammy Coron from Tennessee. Hey there. Did Tim disappear? That's kind of the impression I have. I thought it was my side. I went to go check my internet and see if it was still working. <laughs> but yep, I can still get to YouTube.com. Oh yeah, he's he just dropped off the call too. Yeah, um... He's the one who had the natural disaster this time. It seems like it alternates. Like um, I've got Comcast, and it's not great. It seems to have tons of issues uh, here in this area. Tim is on Rogers, I think, maybe Bell, and he tends to have issues too. Yeah, we, I don't know. We have Spectrum Internet. Uh, we actually, where our house is, we're the last house in this area that is able to have high-speed cable internet. Beyond us, nobody else is able to get cable because of the location. It's all um, satellite. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why we bought this house. We had looked at a bunch of other houses, which we really, really liked, but you couldn't get cable. So, And not cable TV, like high-speed cable, internet cable. So I don't understand. Like, I thought all of my, you know, many, many fees that I pay, you know, for like Verizon and Comcast and all these others go towards, you know, ensuring connectivity in rural communities. Let me yeah, tell like, you something. Like they're just pocketing that and, and shoving it in the CEO's uh, you they know, wallet are. or something. They are. They don't really care because we found this one house. It was a beautiful house. It had, you know, the it just had everything. It was everything we were looking for, but it lacked high-speed internet. And at, at that time, we had some, some extra money put aside, and we approached the cable company and said, look, there are other people that live in this area that would really want cable. We'll pay for it. We'll help bring the line. They wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I was complaining to Tam here about the Comcast that I, I tend, well, between the two of us, it tends to be one of us that goes out during the, the show. Very strange. Well, so what happened here was, I think what happened with my, my internet blipped because both Carol's computer and my computer kind of hung up the call. Well, I guess I'll listen to what you guys were talking about after the show, afterwards. Oh, we were talking about cable. Are you both on cable? Yes. Or DSL or? Yeah, I, high hmm. speed. In fact, I just downgraded my cable from 100 megabits to 30, and I was really concerned about that, but right. I didn't want to pay the money anymore that we were paying for it. And yeah, well, I was going to ask, what, were you, what would you pay for something like that? We were paying upwards of like $120 US dollars. Yeah. And now mm-hmm. we pay for the 30 megabits. And again, we do not have phone or television cable. We just have the internet. We pay about $52 or so for the 30 megabits. And it's 30 up, 5 down. Or, sorry, 5 up, 30 down. Yeah, that sounds pretty similar to my price. Does that give you access to things like Netflix? Are, are you concerned about going over on those? or? No, it's not metered. Like, we don't have... Um 
we don't have like a cap, a data cap. We just have a, a, a speed limit cap and the 30 megabits down is perfectly adequate for what we're doing. And you got to remember like everything I do is online and everything my husband does is online. And of course the kids are both homeschooled. So their stuff they're doing online. And then when they're not doing their school, they're obviously, I say obviously, but they're, they're playing, you know, the shoot em up games and whatnot. And that, that sucks up bandwidth. So I was really concerned about making that switch off of the 100 megabits. But really, there's little to no impact, honestly. Yeah, see, for me, um, my the plan, the differences in, in the three or four plans that I have access to is maybe $10. But then I have to pay, because we do have a data cap here, they like to charge us extra when we go over our allotted amount. So um, I, I pay $30 extra a month to have unlimited. So I end up paying $100 Canadian. I realize that's 50 cents American, but still... <laughs> um, it's painful, you know, like when you consider you got that and you got your elect- your electricity bill and your gas bill. And I have a, like you and I were talking earlier, I have a, a landline phone line that we don't even answer anymore because it's just, it's just full of carpet cleaners and furnace cleaners and, you know, I other didn't kind think of anybody still charged for. Like having a data cap, I thought it was just phone companies that did that. And even I think, even Verizon uh, went yeah. back to their unlimited plan. I don't know if they're still offering it, but I know there was a big thing about it like two weeks ago. I think it's a Canadian thing because well, here it is. It, it's pretty much, I don't know what you call a monopoly where there's just two players because um, if it's cable, then Rogers... Uh, owns the lines and, and rogers is goes by different names across the country um sometimes it's shaw or whatever but they own the cable services so if you have a cable modem and you're connected to your tv and all that kind of stuff you get that but bell owns all the phone lines right ma bell right so all of our um if you have dsl or any kind of service like that it comes through bell even if it's a third party that you go and you you have your deal with they're still on the bell network or they're still on the rogers network so you're kind of you're kind of screwed i mean you can get a a better deal financially but at the end of the day when something goes wrong they send the bell technician in it's kind of sad really we we do actually have i mean there's a lot of there's a a thing called open media i think that i I throw a couple of bucks at every now and then they go up against our government and because we have a crtc that regulates um transmissions and data and movies and whatever we get to watch on tv and that kind of stuff um what comes into our country you know for either through cable or through digital technologies. Yeah, they, they're they always going up against them and trying to fight new laws and new regulations because our, our government's, you know, our government's a little bit more stable than other governments I could name, but mm. still, it's it's still kind of crazy when it comes to, to things like this. I mean, and it's, it's um, I think was it, wasn't, uh, I mean, didn't we talk about this in, in a couple of weeks ago that I think the Canadian government has made, has determined that internet access is a, is a right in Canada. I think you may have mentioned something, something like that. Yeah. Actually, I think you mentioned it to me. I didn't even know. Oh, did I? Oh, maybe I did. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's why I asked, right? Doesn't Google have like a drone coming out or they have it out where it's supposed to be providing internet access across the world? The loon thing, but that was was like for developing countries and stuff too. Like, even though we could desperately use it in the more rural areas of like Canada and the United States, considering how large the landmass is. I think they were going to focus on like India, you know, parts of Africa, that sort of thing. We still have Redbox out here because there's a lot of us who don't have access to internet red, red boxes box? you know what red boxes do right no i do yeah we still have them out here yeah. too it's uh, um coinstar uh, owns red box where it's like a little kiosk where you go and, and rent dvds blu-ray uh movies or uh, oh, video right. games okay. for like a dollar to two dollars per night 
Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, yeah, sort of like, that's how Netflix started, right? Like they had the sort of disc yeah, rental service? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Gosh, you remember those mm. days when they would send you the DVD in the mail? And you'd have yeah, that's to, like, like three, four years ago, Tammy. <laughs> I know, but it seems like a lifetime ago. Technology is moving so fast. Yeah, yeah. But even, like, Redbox, I don't use much anymore because the it's not the price, which has gone up, I don't know, 20 cents, 25 cents, something like that. Um, so, you know, one-fifth increase. But uh, it's more like the convenience factor of, oh, man, I really don't want to drive even five to ten minutes to go drop it off at a Seven Eleven. Tends to not right, be nice right. weather here, you know, when it's raining or, or now when it's uh, cold and sometimes snowy, where I'd rather just find something that I already pay for on Netflix or go pay, you know, three ninety nine up to, like, maybe five ninety nine on Amazon just because... I could just do it right then and there instead of like having to like, oh, okay, I watched the movie. Now I have to remember that tomorrow I got to drop off the disc. But how do you feel about buying movies? Do you, do you buy discs at all or, or are you just totally into the whole Netflix? If it's, you know, Netflix, I ain't watching it kind of, or Amazon or what have you. I, I definitely don't buy DVDs or Blu-rays as often as I used to. It's, you know, in a blue moon kind of thing. But I'm also not really keen on buying digitally at the moment because there isn't Mm-hmm. Like some master service that ye verily will always be there. Like, I don't know, like the library of Congress owns it or something. Right. Um, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. uh, iTunes is probably a good one because it's very unlikely that Apple or iTunes is going to go away. But um, I don't know what's going to happen if I buy, you know, directly from CBS or if I buy uh, directly from whatever Walmart's thing is. It's like voodoo or something or Oh, I didn't even know Walmart had a thing. But, you yeah. know, you, you mentioned the thing with iTunes and buying the movies. Like you, I don't, I can't remember the last time I purchased, like, an actual disc. One, I don't even think I have a, a player in this house. Uh, but I have to find one because somebody gave me this really cool DVD I need to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But aside from that, you know, what irks me about the whole iTunes thing is there are certain movies that I do like to own. Because uh, like Zombieland would be one of them. I, I love watching that movie. I could watch that a hundred times and then watch it again. But with iTunes, I like to rent movies. But what irks me is if sometimes I don't know if I want to rent a movie or buy a movie. And I really, really, really wish they had an option to, after you rented and watched the movie, it came up and said, hey, if you enjoyed the movie, here's your option to buy right. it. And like it would take off whatever you rented or even charge you just like, you know, uh, I just, I don't know what I'm saying, but I, I don't like that I have to rent it. And then if I decide I want to buy it, then I have to pay the full price to buy it. I You're wish there was some again, sort of, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Maybe not the entire rental fee discount, but a little something would be nice, but it would have to be immediate. Like you just watch this. Do you want to buy it now? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and I think for the physical formats, they they're nice in that it you know it's always mine. Um, yes, you know formats may change, but that's something that I can overcome by like, oh, okay, well instead of Blu-ray, it's like Green Ray. Okay, great. Well, I'll find a way to transform that from one format to another, and I still continue to own that forever. Um, and I also have resell capability. Where I'm like, oh, you know, I really don't need these anymore. I'm going to sell these to somebody else who might want them which is not possible at all with the digital solutions. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you can't you can't lend them out like Jonathan and I, my son, he buys a lot of discs at a at a discount place like they're they're um they're second secondhand uh, discs, right? And so and we share them back and forth, you know, so um, but yeah, like I just bought a copy of Rogue One when I went and saw the movie, even though it's not out yet, but I'll get it when it's released. Um, I think it's releasing soon, but I can't lend it to him, right? Because it's on iTunes. Yeah, but it kind of goes back to the whole thing with the cloud services and and renting your software. You know, how, how do we know that we're going to be able to still yeah. do that years to come? True. Or even for now, like Tim, if if if, if you decided right now, it's like you know what, I've had it with Apple. This this whole thing that happened with rollout has has just caused me to change my mind and i'm so really, done i'm, I'm, I'm so like done. full android all the time it's like oh well good luck because all your itunes stuff that you bought is not available on android that's so, true like you're good you're point. locked good in point. you've lost all of that media really wow yeah i hadn't thought about that hmm with regard to having a paper book or or a a CD that you can hold in your hand or a DVD that you can watch. These are all good things that in the apocalypse, you're going to be thankful that you have. I have a handful of music CDs, movies and things like that, that just in case you know what hits the fan. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, but we probably we won't have, have power. In- right. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say, okay. Oh, by the way, uh, I'm sure Fireflies on Netflix. It is here in Canada. Maybe I should check. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think it's in the rotation right now. Well, there you go. See, you I have, have to. No I have to now. watch it. I have to. Have to. Have to watch it. Are you going to RW DevCon? Me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Then yeah, I will. I, I will make sure that I will watch at least one episode. Otherwise, you know what we're doing at RW DevCon, Tammy. I'm kind of afraid of that. So yeah. I'm kind of <laughs> 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 it's a fire firefly uh, marathon. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, nothing can be worse than having to cart around a pink ukulele. So, as far as things go, it was purple. It was purple. It was pink. Fuchsia. All right. <laughs> so, honey, we have some Ask MTJC to go through. We do. We have one that we didn't get to, and that was uh, Tim Richardson, who's talking about um, remote working opportunities and the ability to travel the world with no return date. I'm guessing that's probably related to the what does the iPhone mean to me? based on the the content oh oh, perhaps right yeah 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 definitely i I can definitely agree with that that uh, well i am a remote worker right now um i don't travel the world but you know do things from the comfort of my own home and the home office is you know hundreds of miles away so i can definitely appreciate that yeah and for me like when i was working um when I was working on my own business, wherever my laptop was, was where my business was, right? So, you know, if I was at WWDC or whatever and clients were emailing me or what have you, as long as I had access to the internet. And a lot of times, I think I mentioned before, I use the iPad for the same sort of thing or even my iPhone if push comes to shove. And now with things like Slack, tools like Slack, we can be like, you know, in the case of the Ray Runner like Slack, we have access to uh, our friends around the world. Like, you know, Marin's off in Barcelona and we have one guy forgot his name, in Malaysia. Uh, we have some people in Australia. We have Tammy down in Tennessee. Tammy and myself are constantly talking to each other because we're, you know, working on Roundabout and other things as well, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's the whole, you know, during the day, so it's kind of like six in the morning, you know, the English guys start getting up and making their tea and then they jump on Slack and they go quite late actually and then you know the americans and myself jump on and you know we have our chats and so that kind of you know as much as we talked about having a job where you work go to an office and you meet up with people having slack as a tool to work with is great you know with remote working especially for that kind of stuff but 
Um, the other bit of follow-up we have is from Adam Armstrong asking us at uh, AskMTJC, or hashtag AskMTJC on Twitter, uh, what specs or resolution should I look for in a monitor to best support simulators for Apple TV and iPad Pro development? Mm. And that that's tricky. Like, I don't have... I, I'm actually looking to upgrade my monitor, so I'm intensely curious on the answer to this question. Either of the two of you... Yeah, I think, I think the Retina Tim- displays... I think the retina displays are I mean the iPad Pro is freaking huge when you when you get into like three times the resolution. Let me just get my X code up here. Um <laughs> No it's it's it, Yeah, you can't see any of it. Huh? You can't see yeah, any no, of exactly. it. Yeah, no, exactly. Like and same thing with Apple T V, like you only get like you, you get you can't get the whole thing here. Like I've got um I have a, a an Apple cinema display which is nineteen hundred something or other. Hang on. So it goes to twenty five sixty by sixteen hundred. I don't. I still think that's not big enough for to, to show an Apple TV or an iPad Pro. I think you need to get a Retina display for sure. What do you have, Jaime? I have an older Dell. I don't remember what it is, but it, it's definitely a, the big reason I'm looking to upgrade because I'm you know I'm working from home more and I'm kind of finding that it's not meeting my needs. It was kind of more occasional use before. Um. So I've I've definitely been looking at things like, you know, 4K and and maybe even the 5K monitor from LG as a possibility because I think those might be big enough for like the iPad Pro and I've not done Apple TV development so I don't know what Xcode looks like inside of it but um maybe you might be able to get, you know, 4K of uh of content inside of your little Xcode uh, storyboard window and then have the additional 1K to like give you the the frames of Xcode itself, I'm I'm not sure. Right, but do right. the math on that. You quickly you, you quickly learn how to become a master of moving your mouse around. <laughs> right, and I guess thankfully storyboards can be edited at like any zoom level now, rather than requiring you to go right. all the way in and then go all the way out to do everything else you want to do. Yeah, I I remember when you couldn't do that. It was so unbelievably frustrating. Oh, sorry. It's, it sounds like neither one of us has uh, maybe a, like a great answer for that. So maybe this will be further follow-up of other folks listening to the show say, oh, wow, like I, I totally do this all the time and this is what I use and can recommend and can give us a link to like, you know, Amazon or something or some other or other place that has the model number and everything because I'm certainly interested in that. Well, while we wait, I'm, I'm just uh, waiting for my iPad Pro simulator to open on my Mac here so we can see how big it is. I'm looking at it 25%. If I look at it 30%... Yeah, fifty at fifty percent, it's already it's already taller than my screen is high, right? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's already got a it's already got like a ten twenty percent scroll bar on it. So, so I can't imagine how big it is at one hundred percent. I probably wouldn't see it. But then this is a non retina display I'm looking at. Hi, man. Let's talk about the uh, AWS outage from last week. Yeah, this bit of follow up in, in the prior episode, we had said, "Wow, it sure would be great." If Apple, not Apple, Amazon in this case will, you know, give the details of the postmortem of what in the world happened to S3. Why did it go out? And they did. And we have that link in the show notes for those of you driving at home. It kind of comes down to, well, let me me briefly describe how they described it. They uh, were trying to debug some billing information. They decided, well, we're going to take some servers out of, out of cycles that way we can help debug this. Unfortunately, they accidentally you know, pulled out too many servers out of the rotation. And so everything just started, you know, falling down because of that, right? So you can imagine they, they typoed, I don't know, instead of 25, 250 servers, let's say. 
uh, just for the sake of argument. And this caused this whole cascading thing to happen. And there was this whole like firefighting they were trying to do where they were trying to bring the system back up. But as it turns out, they hadn't done that in a very long time uh, just because of like how resilient the systems were. So it took way longer for the thing to like reboot itself and do all its integrity checks and everything. And that's essentially why it happened the way it did. And they talk about in the postmortem that they want to add safeguards or maybe have added safeguards to this, uh, this script or tool or, or what have you that will prevent you from doing things like, you know, maybe asking you like, are you really sure you want that many? You know, that's, you know, a 10% of S3 server uh, capacity or something kind of like, you know, the, the classic fault with the RM, uh, the remove command in uh, Unix-based systems, where if you do RM minus RF um, slash for the root, like, it just nukes everything that you have on your system, mm-hmm. rather than confirming, like, whoa, 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 like, deleting root is kind well, of... That's what you, you asked it to do that, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it, and it's easy to, like, you know, you hit slash... And then uh, maybe, like in Tammy's example there, like the cat jumps on your keyboard or something, and oh no, they hit the enter before you had a chance to type out the path, and boom, Yeah, but cats gone. are evil. They totally plan to do that. It's not accidental with them. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's it in a nutshell. It was a, a typo and arguably, um, <laughs> you know, ineffective tooling design to prevent the user from doing terrible things to the system. Yeah, I know what it was. He forgot a semicolon. <laughs> I wonder if somebody lost their job over that. Because hmm. that's, that's a pretty big mistake. Well, I think the, uh, they were saying last week, or Hami was saying last week, that there's um, they have regions, and they were saying it was in a particular region, right? I think, uh, what, what did it say in the... In the um... It's the most important region by far, as far as, like, AWS traffic is concerned. It's North Virginia, U.S. East 1, that, that happened. Why would that be the most important one? Well, uh so much of of traffic goes through it um like let's like say um like everything from the americas is almost certainly going through it maybe there's some going through you know like the oregon center or whatnot um but for a lot of historical reasons that kind of escape me it tends to be kind of clustered around the um like the u.s government site uh like physical i was gonna say site. yeah this is next to washington right yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or in the in the vicinity and when it comes to um, AWS functionality, it almost always starts out in North Virginia and then spreads out to the other data centers. So you'll see weird things right, like, oh, right. Oregon doesn't support, you know, feature XYZ uh, Z of, uh, of uh, S3 that just came out and, and it's rolling out to the other regions. Mm-hmm, hey, mm-hmm. I just want to go on record here that I don't think that if it if it was a mistake that the person should be fired. I really don't think. I <laughs> know. Uh, I want. I, I just want to be clear on that. Mistakes happen, and that would be pretty sad if the person yeah. got fired over. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully not. Um, I mean, it's a it's a perfectly you know reasonable mistake to happen, and 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 in my belief, it's it's arguably a fault of the tooling design that it allows this sort of uh, user mistake. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and no matter how careful you are, like things things can happen. Right. Uh, like an errant press of the enter key shouldn't be enough to bring down the system like that. Um, unfortunately, right. uh, it, even if they do have their job, it's uh, right around this time is the season that um, Amazonians go through their, you know, quarterly or yearly review. I forget which. So I can only imagine how that conversation with their manager 
went. Mm. Um, rather, rather bad timing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for those of you driving at home in your cars, I was wondering last week, what, what about S2 and S1? But it turns out that S3 is, is short for simple storage service. So the three S's. It's a funny thing, though, you know, like uh, it's one of the things I think about the Internet a lot. And I don't think a lot of people really sort of sort of think about how it's actually wired up. And um, especially in Canada, right, because, you know, I'm in Toronto, so technically I'm north of the border. And if I want to send an email to Calgary or to Vancouver, that's just to my left, you know. So um, theoretically, I could just, you know, I should, should be able to happily send an email across there. But what really happens is the traffic goes down towards New York and gets routed through that whole web that you were just talked about and then bounced over to Montana or even to Washington and then back up to Calgary or, or, or uh, Vancouver, right? So mm-hmm. I don't think people really think about how, and, and again, if you think about it, like, you know, we have all these rules about television and, you know, data and we have inspection at borders, but we really don't think about how we're all wired together on the internet, which is just one big mess of wires, right? Or services, if you will. Yeah, nobody, nobody's paying attention to where the tubes are for the most part, except maybe the EU. They, right. they tend to be really, really twitchy about making sure that data is stored for its citizens in the EU itself. I know that AMP services like Amazon and, and Rackspace and things like that, the big players, they would ha- they do have servers in, in, in Europe, but, you know, who knows where this stuff is connected, right? So, Right, right. Like, is it replicated? Is it on a CDN? Is it, like, distributed? Or is it just, is that, you know, icon for your app in the App Store stored somewhere in North Virginia, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, very strange stuff. By the way, just as a, as a sort of sidebar, um, I don't know if you, I guess you guys heard about the WikiLeaks stuff that was released on the CIA just, I think, yesterday or fairly recently. There was some stuff mm-hmm. in there that was on the news today. They were talking about the fact that, I think today and yesterday, that um, even Canadian, like the, the CIA is monitoring all kinds of devices and, and including, you know, computers and what have you. And uh, we were talking, I think, uh, couple of months ago about um there was i think there were some hacks or whatever we were talking about where ethical hacks where um people had discovered exploits and then you know apple very quickly closed them up well apparently this wikileaks stuff was saying that there are exploits that even apples and microsoft's and uh, google's of the world don't know about because they're worth money to somebody i think we, we sort of speculated on this at the time that um if somebody finds an exploit, they can make more money selling it to someone nefarious than they can through just being honest and reporting it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there, so uh, you know, uh, I've always laughed at the people who put tape masking or tape over their cameras on their monitors to block their webcams. But you know, I really don't think people want to see video of me picking my nose. But still, uh, it does sound like there is some legitimate, uh, legitimate uh, fears behind all that, right? Did you guys hear about any, any of this stuff at all? I did. And Apple gave a statement that it had already patched um, some number of those defects. It was like 14-ish exploits. And I'm going to pull the number out of the air and say that I think they said something like around half had been taken care of already. So hopefully... This was in the latest CIA thing or the WikiLeaks thing? Yes. Yes. Um, But, I mean, who knows? Like, that's just a snapshot in time, right? So there, there still are vulnerabilities. And who knows how many more there could be. Um, you know, it, it's right. definitely the case where, where many nefarious folks um, are looking to, to to get at this sort of information as we become more connected. So I don't know that I have really good guidance other than to make sure you have like everything 
as patched up as you possibly can and reduce that surface area for people to exploit right. your yeah. machines. Yeah. And, you know, make sure your fan, friends and family have got their, uh, their machines properly passcoded and, and know what they're doing and not just, you know, f- fluffing it off. So Tammy, I want to ask you, do you have like a special gauge of aluminum that you buy for your tinfoil hat or just, you just buy the store-bought stuff? It's the heavy duty brand. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Industrial grade. Yeah, pretty much. And the <laughs> trick is you can't just stop it one layer you it's it's a layer it's kind of like when you go out in the cold you wear more than one jacket you wear a jacket and underwear and several t-shirts and possibly another jacket tinfoil hat wearing is very much like that as well sure and you have like your whole house is like a big faraday cage is it Oh, wouldn't that be nice? I, I told my husband once I wanted to take and board up the windows because we I feel very exposed here with all... I mean, you, we don't even need to use lights in this house. We have so many damn windows. And he's like, I'm not boarding no. up the windows. I said, but if the zombies come... <laughs> he's like, no. But I have to, yeah. He assured me that if the zombies come, we can use the, the planks from the fence and we'll be fine. I said, okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> I didn't see a fence when I was there. It's by the pool. Oh, oh, right. Oh, that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. But you know, back to the uh, taping up of your monitors. My, both my kids do that. Both their their um, video cameras are taped. Really? Yeah. And I didn't even encourage that. That was all them. They have their own little stash of tin foil. Clearly. Wow. Mm. <laughs> well, it's got to be all that Mister Robot stuff too. I'm sure. <laughs> Yep. I remember when we didn't need passwords and email. You can send email to any server you wanted. No, come on now. I, You know, that's not true. When I was a network administrator back in what seems to be another lifetime, I mean, we used to have this saying that the only secure computer was one that was in a locked room, unplugged and switched off. And even then it wasn't secure. You know, someone can break the door in and go steal it. There's nothing. That's true. Nothing nothing yeah. is sacred in this world. Nothing is private, especially with the internet. I mean, you know, you hear these stories about people put things on there, but here's the deal. It's it's like I tell my kids, if something comes out of your mouth, regardless of whose ears you're trying to get it to, it's out there. Anyone right. can use that information for anything they want. So be very mm-hmm. mindful in the things that you type and the things that you say and, and the things that you're a part of because it's out there forever now, especially digitally. It's out there. Your social footprint, I hate to say it, but this is true. Your social footprint determines a lot in your life. I mean, look, at, people have had their lives destroyed because of comments that they've put on social media. And some of those comments mm-hmm. were intentionally hurtful and some of them were just momentary lapse of good judgment and yet it didn't matter it 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 destroyed them and it's very difficult mm. to come back from that right right you know i just found a link to something that says there's gonna be an announcement on march sometime for apple yeah yeah that, that sounds like a good segue from you know talking about the interconnectivity doom causing problems to like tim tell us about more of these devices that we can buy to interconnect our lives <laughs> <laughs> well not only can you get like a camera you can get a really good one right so yeah when, when they when they hack in and see you you know picking your nose it'll be in like quad hd not just you know plain old hey, high definition mm-hmm. it looks just like the man on the moon <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we were. Just, I think a friend of the show, Far- uh, Farley, had posted a thing about the iPad Pro Two. Um, coming out in announcement, the upcoming March event. Um, they're calling it Apple Spring event. Um, iPad Pro 2, a new iMac now. Ooh, hey. New MacBooks. And I've got a Gap commercial in my face now. Go away, Gap. I hope you guys are enjoying this this ramble I've got going here. It's fantastic. I'm enjoying every <laughs> anyway, second of yeah, it. So, so new Mac, MacBooks, uh, an iPhone SE 2, uh, iOS 10.3, and much, much more. And this is going to be doesn't April. Yeah, they're saying they're speculating March or April, but I'd heard April seventh or ninth or something the other day. Ninth, yeah. Hmm. Oh, they're talking about last year's. Anyway, that's kind of interesting stuff coming up. The new new gear, right? Sooner would be nice because I'm I'm ready to throw money at Apple to upgrade my uh, my iPad at the very least. And wow, if this I, I've not heard of iPhone SE 2 being um, available, but that would be pretty nice, depending on what it is. Uh, trying to well, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the phones, and, and I mentioned the SE. Remember, Mark got confused about which one I was talking about. And So when we talked about it at that time, it was um, just an upgrade for the storage, right? Like this one. Yeah, 128. Yeah. Well, the, the article's not really committed um, either way on this one. Okay. Does the SE have Touch ID? Do you know? I don't remember. Um, I think it might. Given the direction, we're, given what we were just talking about 10 minutes ago? <laughs> I, I, I think it does. I think in that form factor, the only one that lacks it is, well, two, the iPhone 5 and the iPhone 5C. I think the 5S and the SE have Touch ID, if I'm not mistaken. Let's head over to Apple and look at the iPhone page. It's funny, I saw, I, I was in California with, one, with a friend who had the... Um, SE and it just looked like a five, like or you know, didn't look anything special. The SE does have Touch ID. Where do you see that, Tammy? On the Apple page? Yeah, not midway down. Well, that's good to know. How can you miss it? It's bright pink, my favorite. No, color. I'm looking at the. I'm looking at the comparison page where they compare the mo- the models. Oh, oh, okay. How much are these things? My wife's looking for a phone. Maybe I should get her one of these iPhone SE. Things. See, I I know you you guys probably don't have Verizon over by you, but. They were just doing a sale for us. We got the kids each got an SE for like, I think it was 10 bucks. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a two-year plan and all, but we've had Verizon for 20-something years now, so it's not likely we'll be changing anytime soon. They have have the kind of uh, tinfoil you like, right? (laughs) They do. Heavy duty, man. Heavy duty. (laughs) Yeah, because my wife doesn't like the 6 or the... She really doesn't like my 6 Plus, so... No, those are so big. Too mm-hmm, big. Mm-hmm. I have to say that they, they've been making them a little bit more durable because I have dropped my six several times. And now, granted, the screen is cracked and it cracks a little bit more every time I drop it, but the phone still works. That's good. All right. So, Jaime, why don't you tell us about the 81 uh, year old woman schooling us all on making iPhone apps? Yeah. This is a follow up to maybe a couple different topics, none, none in particular, but I think it certainly come up. You know, several times where, you know, people have asked us uh, either directly on the show or uh, maybe, you know, on Twitter or something more, or in some cases in person, like, you know, is it too late for me to get into this sort of thing? And I think my general answer is, well, no. Um, and uh, this individual, uh, Masako Wakamiya, is, uh, as you mentioned, an 81 year old woman who has uh, made her first iPhone app 
after she only started to use computers at the age of, of 60. Um, she was a, was like a, a banker for 43 years and retired and, uh, started learning how to use computers at 60. So, so she's had, you know, 21 years of, of, you know, computing some, time, some time. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's good. Um, but she made her first app and this article describes, um, you know, sort of how she did it in, in terms of, you know, learning how to use Swift and, and getting an individual's help over Skype and Facebook messenger and the app itself is um about hina matsuri which is uh girls day in japan and the, i guess there's a traditional doll display that uh you display these dolls in a very particular um hierarchy and the, the app sort of helps teach you how to do that so I, I thought this was really cool because it's definitely a perfect example of like you know computing is one of those things that um it really doesn't matter how old you are like we're finding the boundaries of like, you know, how old you can be and how young you can be as well. Let's not forget about that side where younger and younger, um, you know, kid, literally kids are, are going to WWDC, right? They have that scholarship program where it's like, Oh, this person's 13, this person's 10. I'm like, Holy smokes. Like that's incredible. Uh, there's very few endeavors in life where the community can be so broad. So I thought this was a, a great story. It's worth taking a look at the, the article and uh, and the TED talk as well. It's an incredible story, and it does just prove that it, it really doesn't matter when you start, how late, like Jaime said, how late and how early. If if you want to learn it, go learn it. And that goes for anything. It's not just programming. You you want to learn how to draw pictures, go, go do it. You want to learn how to sail a boat, go do it. Hmm. Indeed. Cool. Although I do think that my my hopes and dreams of being a running back in the NFL are I'm, I'm just, I'm too old for that sort of thing. I'll just be quite frank. There's no, there's no running backs at, at my age. So I'll never be so sad. If it makes you feel any better, mm. I'll never be a ballerina. <laughs> Carol was once. Was she? I always wanted to be like a, and the, you guys are going to laugh at me, but like, you know, when you're a kid, you want to, be everything and it's like oh i want to be a an astronaut veterinarian uh ballerina doctor <laughs> why can't i do it of course mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wow ambitious for sure yes and well, if see, you if guys you tell kid, anybody i ever wanted to be a ballerina i will smack you i will throat punch both you're of you <laughs> live on the air here you realize right oh you know that right maybe i'll have to slip you uh some somebody to have you take that out <laughs> <laughs> it's on the show it's uh once that's on the internet it's forever out there even if we wanted to delete it we couldn't that's true that's true come on what little girl didn't want to be a ballerina i actually wanted to be dolly parton when i was growing up that's what i wanted to be i wanted to be dolly parton sure well there's nothing wrong with that in fact what carol does is she sews um, ballet costumes for the mississauga ballet which is a a group of dancers from, I think they're three to four, all the way up to like 16, 17, 18. And she does all the costumes for them. But when the little girls, the ones that are three or four, they're not a ballerina until they have a tutu. And that's what Carol makes for them, right? It's little baby tutus. So Aww. maybe I can get Carol to make you a tutu. It'll fit on your over top of your hat. Yeah, and tell her to make it out of tin foil. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. All right, that's a keeper. 
Okay. You got so, me on the show now. It's just all hell's breaking loose. I know. It's roundabout. I know. It's roundabout <laughs> MTJC. I'm sorry. I apologize to the listeners, whether they're in their car or in their house. It doesn't matter. I'm sorry, but here I am. <laughs> all right. Okay. So uh, let's talk about this latest news from the developer forums. Daily. Yeah. This one just came up, and um, it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, I think. It could be kind of scary for folks who happen to use this tool called uh, Rollout.io, which um, allows you to do all sorts of nifty live patching activity of your app. So uh, you use their framework and you know you get your app into the app store and then you say, hey, you know what, I actually kind of want to do something a little different. And you can, through their system, push code to the device. Apple has... Uh, apparently turned its attention towards this this uh, particular topic and said, you know what? That's not cool. That violates App Store Review Guideline 2.5.2. And what we'll have in the show notes is a link to the uh, Apple Developer Forum um, where this information first came up that uh, this individual uh, got a message from App Review saying, like, look, your, your app can't link this framework um, because you can't do these sorts of things, right? You can't have uh, code that passes arbitrary parameters to dynamic methods, uh, such as deal open, DSIM, response to selector, perform selector, that sort of stuff. Uh, please remove this code and resubmit your app. So it, it's kind of intriguing because I, I, I hope that it's, you know, really related to just this specific thing where, you know, Apple doesn't want you to be able to, you know, subsequent to app store review, be able to change your app to do, uh, let's say nefarious things is probably what they're looking for. They don't want you uh, right, poking yeah. around at, at private APIs and stuff that they, that they couldn't see, right. They, they literally could not review in your code, even if they ran it through a scanner because it wasn't there until after your app went live. The way you describe it though, it sounds like you can, you actually totally can upload new classes and new view controllers into an app that's already been through the review process. Right. I mean, I know that there's some, some talk about the being able to add features or functionality or tweak functionality, right? Um, and there is some ability to do that already with, with other apps, right? You can have features that are turned off, and then you can turn them on. And I've even seen some enterprise presentations at Apple where they, they demonstrated that kind of stuff with tools like um, Jamf, uh, Jamf, you know, the, the um, enterprise or MDM, mobile device management stuff. So I've, I've linked in here as well. I, I went to the rollout site this uh, just before the show, and they've already uh, got a link that pops up saying, here's our statement about this this uh this thing saying that rollout is in fact safe and is secured against man in the middle attacks, which is what Apple says in that particular guideline um, that they're concerned about is the fact that you someone someone could, in a sense, if you have this hook into your app, someone could theoretically get in the middle of that, right, and uh, change the behavior of your app, right? But uh, rollout says it's safe and, and they will work with, they've contacted Apple already and they will work with Apple to make sure that their product is within within the guidelines. Um, man in the middle stuff uh, it is certainly an understandable concern, but I I'm reading between the lines here, and I think that that's sort of a red herring from Apple. I think they're using right. that as sort of the the nicer reason to explain to this you know individual is like, look, this is why we're not allowing this you know for security reasons, rather than saying please don't use this stuff that's usable to bypass the App Store review process. Like it, it's there right, for a reason. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's more more the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if I had to guess, um, 
it's not as if this role hasn't existed for a long time. It's not, uh, I don't think, like a surprise. Uh, I'll just read it briefly here, right? So 252. Apps should be self-contained in their bundles and may not read or write data outside the designated container area, nor may they download, install, or execute code, including other iOS, watchOS, macOS, or tvOS apps. So downloading, installing, executing code is pretty much what rollout.io does. Um, right, right. So, I mean, it was always kind of a, uh, you're taking your chances sort of thing uh, with this. And I don't know why Apple has decided to turn its attention to this, but um, it has. And, and that's something that, that folks should uh, evaluate when they're, um, you know, using third-party stuff. Um, or even if you're rolling it your, yourself, uh, it's something you should consider as well. Like how close to the edge of the guidelines are, are you going to get? And is it is it worth it to you? Microsoft's uh, code push, which we'll also have you know, linked in the notes, uh, probably falls under this same sort of uh, problem as well. But I'm I'm less clear as to whether Apple has uh, has looked at that or not. Yeah, is this a code push? Is that a, a works with iOS product as well? Or let's see, uh, enables Cordova and React Native developers to develop mobile apps uh, updates according to their homepage. So yeah, it definitely is uh, iOS. Uh, iOS friendly and, and Android friendly for that matter, but I don't, I don't know the rules for the Play Store, but I don't think they're uh, restrictive in that sort of way. This is uh, sorry, this is on to record over is yeah, this is this is iOS as well, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, there was some speculation I heard from some people earlier today about whether React Native falls under this same sort of uh, guideline. Hmm. Not really familiar that much with React Native. That's uh that's the one where you basically write with um, traditional web tools. Isn't that how that works? It's a JavaScript-based uh, tool that you write, and it um, turns that that code into um, like actual native code, so it, it performs well. Um, I think we had mentioned it once or twice on the show before, but it uh, it's definitely the, like the new hotness. It's definitely one of those things I've seen a lot of buzz about because it you know, allows you to very quickly iterate uh, on on two different platforms for sure, right? Like iOS and Android uh, have mm-hmm. commonality between code, but also it literally allows you to iterate you know, while you're developing because um, it has like live interpretation. So rather than, oh, I made a change, let me stop the app and fire up the simulator again, you essentially just wait for the change um, to sort of propagate when you're you're writing your code. I know that like Etsy is using React Native and uh, sorry not Etsy Artsy is what it was intended to be pardon me and uh, Instagram notably had a a blog post at some point here talking about their right yeah. their use of, of React Native it, it's unclear to me whether this will fall a foul because you don't have to use React Native in a way that would um, you know allow you to be doing things remotely I, I think you very well could because I. I don't see why you couldn't just download some new JavaScript and evaluate it locally to, to do what you want. But it's definitely definitely something to keep your eye on. And and the other thing I'm concerned about is um, will Apple also get really grumpy about A-B testing tools um, like Lean Plum or um, was it like Segment and a couple others that can do this sort of thing where um, mm-hmm. you know, I released one version of the code, but the version you see is different than the version I see because we're in two different 
groups, the A group or the B group for testing? Would Apple require us to provide, you know, multiple logins? Like, hey, we, we want to see both versions. We don't want you to try tricking us of like, oh, yes, sir, the, there's, a, there's a productivity tool. Please review it as that. And haha, we, we turn on the A-B testing functionality remotely. And now it's like, you know, a Nintendo emulator or some other sort of thing that's like totally <laughs> would never be allowed in the App Store. See, this is why I don't use third-party libraries or rarely use them for this for this exact reason right here. Because yeah. you don't know what they would do to your app, you mean? or Because I don't know how long I'll be able to use it. I don't know if the code is going to stay up-to-date and maintained, if, if suddenly, all right. of a sudden, it's not going to be allowed. And this, this is the only reason. It almost goes back to what we were talking about earlier, earlier before. How long is this going to be around for? How long am I going to have access to, to watch the movies that I, I purchased? You know, it's kind of like the right, same thing. Right. Yeah, it also raises questions about um, Apple's, review, Apple's review process because they, you know, they can't possibly run every single, single scenario in your app because, you know, I'm sure, you know, without a full description of what the app does, they'd have to go through every scenario that you use. So they must have some way of, of firing up the app and looking at... Uh, all the network calls it's making and, and maybe what they can figure out what frameworks it's using. If it's using third party stuff, then I mean, how, how could they possibly review apps as quickly as they do these days? Right. Um, they must have some sort of, uh, thing because even, uh, cause I know even when you set up a demo account for them to use, they don't always log in with that demo account. It seems right. True. So, yeah. So they, how could they possibly be going through? I mean, they're, they're firing it up. seeing if it doesn't crash, they're looking for, you know, anything that's, uh, quite noticeable. Maybe there's some endpoint that rollout hits that, or the roll, rollout framework hits, so that they were, they started to look for. Maybe they caught, found something in a previous app or whatever, and now rollout has become a target for for Apple's uh, scrutiny, right? Because as well, they do, they do that with with the, your binaries when you upload. Um, you know, if you, depending on what, you know if you have all the privacy statements in your app, you know they're starting to catch those and flag those. You know. Um, as well with iOS 10 and you know, there's a bunch of other things like that kind of stuff that, you know, if you don't have it, they, they catch it right at the, at the very, in the first couple of scans that they look at your app. Right. So, you know, this might be a little a simpleton for me to think this way, but this is how I, this is how I see it. You've got several people, probably hundreds of people who knows doing these jobs, do it, you know, the job of reviewing the software there are going to be people who follow some sort of checklist better than others. And I of really, course, yeah, yeah I, I think it's kind of like, you know, when you, when you make a phone call to your credit card company, you're going to get that one person that asks you every single one of your questions, your security questions. And then you're going to get that other person who doesn't even ask you a single one, you know, so it really depends who your reviewer is, what checklist they're working off of, if they're even using it and again maybe i'm just being a simpleton here but i think that's the issue that's going on how come this app went through when when this one got kicked back well because you had a reviewer who was working off a different checklist or actually cared what was written on that checklist and followed it to the t or even the automation scan didn't have that particular wasn't wasn't aware of that thing i mean I mean, Apple can't know every single trick that we use to try and get things past them, really, right? You know, thinking about that last statement you just made that made me think, well, uh, kind of facetiously, it's like, yeah, like you, if you're going to do this sort of stuff, you probably shouldn't use really popular 
frameworks that they might happen to, to find out about <laughs> and know about. <laughs> and ideally are not, you know, I don't know where these folks are based, but ideally not based in the Bay Area. Like, you should choose some remote thing that came off like a Russian or Chinese server that's like not in English right. and nobody's heard right. of it. There's like three stars on GitHub that, you know, it's like they would sure. never, you would just like fall through the cracks uh, of like you know, notability sort of thing. Um, well, don't, don't remember that counterfeit copy of Xcode that went around for a while. People want, people found a faster download server for Xcode, uh, something six or something like that or five. And it turned out to be a hacked version of Xcode. Right. Right. So, you know, so I mean, yeah. And, and it's like Mark has been saying all the time, all along, it's, it's getting to the point almost with all these third party tools where they're like Lego bricks. You can build it, basically build a house and put some wheels on it and have it go down the, you know, the road for you just by plugging all these things together and adding some UI to it. Right. Yeah. And I think this sort of thing made a little bit more sense to justify, um, in, in my mind, uh, from a risk perspective, when Apple's review process was two weeks, maybe a week, if you were lucky, now that it's, you know, two days and, you know, we're seeing stuff go through in one day. Two days, man. That's crazy. How could they take that long to review my app? Really? Yeah. Two <laughs> days, one day. Um, uh, I recently ran into three or four myself, but that, that would seem like it was just a blip. Uh, we've not seen that. Um, I, I think it's sort of less problematic to deal with where it's like, oh, no, um, you know, something catastrophically bad has happened or uh, having a, a difficulty in iterating as um, as quickly as necessary. I, I kind of think like it's a different platform, right? If you, if you want web style, as soon as I commit something, it's, it's live and available to everybody. I, I think do web stuff if you want uh mobile integration, but um, you know, with, with fewer restrictions, then I think you're going to look at Android. If you want, you know, the stuff that, apple offers i think you, you got to play by their rules and they're not it's not rule of law right like i I read the the guideline but it's not it's not rule of law where you know we're going to take this to the supreme court and argue over it. it's like no just assume that apple is this mercurial god that does things as it pleases and and you'll be fine i think uh just try you know stay well within the bounds that, that they couldn't possibly uh take issue with what you're doing is i think the advice i would give folks Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we move on to the mono repo? Yeah. So, so Tim, you'd, you'd asked me about, um, you know, yeah, you've heard it? this term mono repo, and <laughs> just I, today, actually, yeah. Uh, I feel like it's relatively new as a term, and and if it's not, maybe it's just gone uh, more in style. Um, what does it mean? Like, I don't, I don't know that term. So mono repo is really is like uh, like monolithic repository. Um, Oh, okay. or, or single repository for your code. So as opposed to having, uh, let's say, you know, multiple projects, uh, each living in their own repository, or in the case of this uh, blog post from Uber's engineering blog that uh, we're going to have here, um, they started out with their iOS app being broken down into like, you know, CocoaPod level stuff. Uh, Yes, some external stuff, but even their own internal things. They had like a shared library that was a CocoaPod. And eventually they ended up building up more and more to the point where it was no longer taking seconds. It was taking minutes for their pod updates to occur. And they said, this is crazy. Like we're losing so much engineering productivity here. Maybe there's a better way for how we can do things. And so they revamped things to have a single 
mono repository that has all the code um, there. So they, they, they did a couple things here, which is where it gets a little difficult to, to sort of talk about, where they re-architected their app to break it up into smaller modules like uh, location services, let's say, uh, experimentation, uh, networking, uh, UI type stuff, login sort of things. So they made their whole app sort of more reusable. And then they sort of broke up the whole idea of like, well, what would we do if we're going to have this single repository where, you know, we don't want to wait for CocoaPods to do its thing to resolve these dependencies and not realize, hey, I made a code change in this one module, but it turns out that like analytics is not happy with the code change that I made. And I don't realize that until I pull in the new, uh, you know, update from the repository. They split it up so that, and they show the folder structure here where you have this uh, three folder structure where you have apps, libraries, and vendor. Just think of that as third party tools uh, or frameworks as peers. And within those, they'll have like, let's say the libraries, they have like their utilities framework or their analytics framework. You can imagine, right? Uh, likewise with, with vendor stuff, you know, they're using a mocking service. They're using, you know, let's say like Facebook or something underneath the covers. And then on the apps level, they'll have, okay, well, you know, they have their rider app that most of us have, have heard about for Uber. And of course the drivers have their own app. And as they pointed out in this blog, the reason they were able to spin up their Uber eats app, which, um, allows people to, you know, use Uber to have food delivered to them, like from restaurants is because they had gone through this effort of breaking their app itself into smaller, composable, reusable components, yet at the same time, like not having to worry so much about like, well, we're, we're burning hours a day, you know, collectively um, waiting for CocoaPods to update or any other solution. Like you check out the repository, the mono repo, and you have everything. So you want to make an architectural change to how analytics works? Great. You can do it in one commit rather than, well, okay, I made this change here in the framework repo, and then I got a link to this other commit, completely separate commit over in you know, the app itself that is using the analytics. Like, it's all there. So that's kind of where they, they came from with this. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's definitely gotten, you know, monorepo as a, as a style has gotten some more attention. I know Google talked recently about how their entire company has like all of Google is in one gigantic repository that Microsoft does something very, very similar with, um, with the windows code base. And they've even developed some tools for Git itself that, uh, make it feasible to deal with these multi gigabyte, you know, data sets that you, you get from Git. So I don't know. Have either, have either of you, um, been in a project or a company that's used this sort of setup? Cause I, I'll admit I've not like everything has been much smaller where we, maybe had discussions about, well, we're using CocoaPods. What should we do? Should we, you know, should we just, you know, leave the pod file and dynamically pull things in? Should we check in the pods themselves, uh, you know, into our apps repository? Should we have two repositories, like one repository just for the CocoaPods? And then that's linked to from the repository for the app itself. Yeah. It's, it, I, it's interesting how they've broken down this other diagram that's uh, earlier in the, in the uh, or in the in the post here, where they talk about modularizing the code base, and they and they break it down sort of the same way that that say Apple would when they talk about you know how um, an iPhone like kind of goes all together. 
Um, like, you know, they've got their, their foundation layer and then they've got their core frameworks over top of that. And then, um, components and then all the way back up to the actual application itself but you know i don't think i've ever worked on anything that's that sophisticated or that well engineered to be honest with you right so i don't, I don't think I've, I've worked at a team where this sort of effort would have been you know worth the return on investment because the team wasn't that large but it's worth noting here that they say that um as they scaled up they ended up with more than 150 engineers right. that joined their wider right. ios team and I'm assuming by wider iOS team, they mean not everybody on that list that, you know, commits code to the iOS code base is uh, an iOS engineer full time doing that sort of thing. But even if it was, you know, half of those people were, you know, back end people or Android people or, you know, project managers or designers or something, you would still have 75 iOS engineers poking around in this code base and like that is the point I think where it makes sense is like, yeah, we need to break this down into modules so that, you know, not everybody's stomping on everybody else's work. And let's, right, let's go right. to That's... this complicated module and structure system that, that, you know, makes it easier to, to scale up your team. Yeah. in an enterprise level app, it's, it's, it's exactly, there's a lot of stomping and there's a lot of, you know, people breaking each other's code and stuff like that and, and yelling and screaming and well, not quite that bad, but you know, you sort of have to, coordinate the path you know as the as the product gets uh, moved through the development cycles right so and there are you know there are concurrent releases and there are releases that are staggered over time and you know large larger projects are broken up into phases and it's uh, right. kind of an interesting strategy uh, continuous integration is always a strategy for for large companies i think agreed agreed i have to see what comes out of this over the next couple of weeks and this just came out today right this this post yeah, or maybe last night. I can't remember. It is twenty four hours or less. The mono repo. Okay. Where are we? Is that it? Are we there? I think we are. Is it soup yet? Is it soup yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> Hang on a second. Siri, are we there yet? Are we there yet? We don't appear to be navigating anywhere right now. <laughs> if you'd like directions, just say get directions to wherever. Get directions to wherever. I wonder how long it would take out to get, get there. Get directions to wherever. Wherever you are, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had fun with that one, implementing that one. <laughs> wherever you are, that's what you are. All right, well, let's do some picks. Uh, how many do you have a pick? Yeah, it's kind of a, a strange one. It's very, very different than the normal picks. This is a article here talking about how New Zealand, uh, specifically the tech industry in Wellington, New Zealand is trying to recruit technical experts from around the world to join their community. Like they're desperate for tech talent. So desperate that they're going to bring in 100 potential recruits and invite them, you know, for a week long trip, like for free um, with the catch being that you have to show like why, you know, you could be contributing to these, uh, these various companies. They're going to have, uh, interviews all throughout. They're going to have, you know, meetups and other sort of things to sort of sell you on the idea of, uh, living in Wellington and also like what that community and, and tech setup is all like you, as of this recording and yeah, there'll be plenty of time. You can apply and submit your resume, uh, by March 20th for the May 8th to 11th trip. And they have a kind of a nifty little YouTube video that makes it seem really kind of interesting and, and cool. So 
uh, as with most things on this podcast, um, this is not legal advice or anything. So uh, please, <laughs> if it turns out that you go on this trip and uh, they want to sell you a timeshare or heaven forbid, uh, you come back missing some kidneys, uh, <laughs> <laughs> please, uh, please don't blame us. Uh, let the buyer beware sort of uh, stuff. Yeah, your mileage may vary. Exactly. <laughs> Damn, son. Kidneys missing? Jeez. <laughs> but it, it does sound interesting. You know, a new life awaits you in the off-world colonies. <sighs> yeah, I mean, would would you be interested in this sort of thing? Like, let, let's say, disregard, you know, current employer status and sort of stuff. Let's say you were um, in between, right? And, uh, and let's also, let's say, uh, disregard issues with... Uh, you know, moving family and, and that sort of stuff. So let's assume you have a pretty good situation where you're okay with moving to other parts of the world. Would, would you take them up on this sort of a career trip? Is, is this an effective way to try to draw talent? I'm, I'm going to say yes. And the only reason I'm going to say yes is because Tim and I just talked to somebody who went to New Zealand and got for a week. For a week and ended up staying for, what was it, a decade or two? So 10 years, 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So for a decade, because it was so beautiful and wonderful or that maybe she was in prison. I don't know. I don't remember. No, I'm just kidding. But she, <laughs> she said it was absolutely. You have to wait for the episode. To come out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, she said it was absolutely beautiful. And based on that conversation that Tim and I just had with her, not more than two hours ago, my answer would yeah. be yes. Yeah. It's where the Lord of the Rings was take, took place, right? <laughs> yeah, that's where they did the filming. Yeah, exactly. New Zealand. I don't know if it was in Wellington, but you know, I'm sure you could get your way over there if you wanted to see the Hobbit holes. Yeah, for sure. No, I think I think it's definitely uh, it, it's very intriguing. But you're exactly right. I mean, you know, for me, there's a couple of familial re- familial reasons why you know I don't really take Silicon Valley seriously. But not to say that I wouldn't if an offer came my way, but. Uh, same thing. Same thing with this. It is intriguing, but uh, you know it's, the issue here. Of course, you have to prove that you're you're uh, to, to win this trip, if you will. Or it's basically a week of interviews, right? But in order to get the get on the get on the, the selected commi- users or selected travelers, you have to prove that you're you're willing, able to uh, to actually move to New Zealand and work there, right? Yeah, I mean, they're talking about remote opportunities. <laughs> remote would be would be nice to, then you go visit the home office uh every once in a while that'd be pretty cool uh it says here right. software developer creative director product manager analyst or digital strategist so i, I kind of wonder how the the competition will go for this like i i mean it sounds like it would be cool just just to go see if nothing else it seems like that would you know in and of itself, just a trip to a beautiful country like New Zealand would, would cause a lot of people to, to try to join. Where right, right. Kind of wonder how they're going to filter. Like, what's what's the level we're talking here, right? Is it like, oh, well, by golly, you better be Marissa Meyer because if you're not at that level, you're not going to get the free trip. Um, or could you be, you know, let's say like my level, you know, pre- pretty good, not, not bad at his job, but uh, not necessarily, you know, the most notable person, right? Um, it's kind of a... a Pretty good, you know, everyday average Joe developer. Maybe. Right, right. Um, I do think it is probably worth the investment for them because, you know, you you think about, you know, paying for the the airplane tickets um, is probably one of the bigger costs. Uh, Hotel accommodations, they've probably 
you know, the, the mayor of Wellington is is involved in this. So he's probably got something, you know, pretty you know, nicely set up with the, the local hotels, probably really good hotels to try to, you know, help recruit people and, and show like, wow, this is actually really nice. It's it's not just, you know, green hills and sheep. There's like this whole urban community that you can be in uh, if you want. So being there, able to, to kickstart, I don't know what they would call you know, they usually say Silicon something, right? Like Silicon Beach is uh, the Los Angeles area. You know, Silicon Alley is New York. Uh-huh. Everybody try to be like the next Silicon Valley. Um, whatever Silicon New Zealand turns out to be, you could be at the beginning of that. And so maybe you might end up being, you know, a rather big fish in a currently small pond, but then it might grow more and more from that. And maybe they do become a place that draws a lot of tech talent. I don't know. I, I, it feels like it's worth the investment to me if I was like the mayor of Wellington. Like this seems like a really good way to draw people that you know from areas that may not have necessarily considered it before. Certainly, everybody knows about you know some of the big tech hubs like Silicon Valley itself, and so on and so forth. Um, right, right. I'd have to say, like, I never would have considered New Zealand before, not because of like uh, dislike or anything, but just because it literally would not have been on my radar had I not heard of this sort of thing. Hmm. How did you find out about it? I saw this uh, somewhere on Twitter. People were retweeting about it, wondering if it was real or not. And it it seems seems legit. But again, kidneys. So be careful. (laughs) Mind your kidneys. Yep. Exactly. All right, Tammy, do you have a pick? I do. My pick is, is Moho. It's animation software from Smith Micro. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about it? I can tell you that when I first started using it, which it's been it's been a little while now, maybe like I don't know, a little over a month or so, and it's like using it, like learning everything I can about it, reading manuals. I mean, the whole nine. Uh, what I can tell you about it is when I first started using it, I spent the first two hours complaining about this is terrible. How am I going to figure this out? This doesn't feel at all intuitive. Uh, what was I thinking? Why would I do this? Why wouldn't I use something else? I mean, just, you know, straight two hours of really complaining about it. And then I took a I took a breather and I went back at it like an hour later and started to really take the time to learn about the different tools and why they react the way they do and and. and did several projects as far as, you know, not like, like big projects, but animated a character that I had laying around, uh, created a new character and then took that into animation and took that into, uh, adding bones and structures and things like that. And I, I'm in love with it now. It, it, it may not seem Mm. intuitive at first, but when you start to understand why some of the decisions were made for it to behave the way that it does, you understand how it's able to be so powerful. So what what I'm doing now with Moho is working on a secret project using Moho for for a, a particular game development project that I can't tell anybody about yet, just yet, but soon, very soon. And then I'm putting together a course for Day of the Indie on the introduction to Moho, which will be available next week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So did you start with a, like a 
trial version of it or did you just dive right in with both feet? I love Smith Micro products. I have uh, Clip Studio, which is my go-to tool for, for drawing. So I'm, I'm no stranger to that. Motion Artist, I'm not quite as happy with that just because it doesn't really support Retina. You know, so the menus are a little fuzzy on a Retina device. Um, but aside from that, I just went right in. They have two versions. They have a pro version, which is what I use. It's a little pricey. It's three ninety nine. although I think I got it when it was on sale. So I only paid like two fifty mm. for it. Uh, and they, they run sales all the time. Um, but they also have a debut version, which is, which is really inexpensive. I think it's like $39 or something. Maybe forty nine dollars for the debut version. Oh, debut, yeah, sixty nine dollars. Okay, so yeah, you could see how much of a discount I got when I got it, and it was several months ago. I got it back in Christmas time, I think. Uh, so I, oh, I guess I've been playing it, playing with it for a, a longer while than than I even realized. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I I definitely recommend it. You can do so much in it. You can do. Well, they have some really nice drawing tools, although. Because it is so powerful, there's no reason why you can't create your characters or whatever it is you need to animate in another program, uh, whether it be vector or or, uh, pixel-based. It doesn't really matter because you can pull that into Moho, and through their bone system, you can pretty much animate anything you want. They've got flexi bones. They've got layer bones. I mean, it's, it's... Really incredible. So that is my pick. And if you don't mind this shameless plug, y'all should check out Day of the Indie when the tutorial is released next week. Bones bones as a, a virtual bones as a rigging system is pretty common for uh, animating 3D as, as far as like I'm, lim- you know, my limited familiarity goes. Is it common for 2D animation to have bone systems like uh, like Moho has here? The short answer to that question is no. The long answer is yes, because that's where the industry is moving towards. So you're finding more and more. And in fact, the bones in Moho is relatively new. I don't exactly know when they added it. It might have just been uh, in this version in 12. I could be wrong about that. I haven't done 100% research on that. But I know it is relatively new addition to this software and it, you're seeing more and more 2D software either make a better bone system than they currently have or add a bone system to what they didn't have before. Oh, that's, interesting, interesting. That's, that's not to mean like, okay, so th- there's a lot of um, talk within the community because this is a 2D animation tool. However, it is powerful enough that you could do a full turnaround and essentially get a 3D, like... I would say like a 3D space in a 2D world, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Now, granted, if, uh-huh. if you're going to be doing a lot of, of turnarounds and things like that, uh, you're better off doing that in a 3D modeling software. But if if the need is there, you can certainly do it in this software. You can. I, I've seen it done. Um, I'm I'm actually working on a turnaround on one of my characters. That'll that'll be a later course because it is somewhat advanced. So, yeah, again, you're going to get it in Smith Micro. Look, they are no stranger to this, even with their Clip Studio. When I first started using that, I'm telling you, I'm I'm like right on target with a two-hour bitch session about their software, their (laughs) interface, because it's like, oh, my gosh, what were they thinking when they did this? And then you you have to, well, for me, I have to step back and think to myself, wait a second. 
let me, let me come to this without any preconceived notions of how things should be. And when I do that, it's like a whole new world opens up and I can see why they do it the way they do it. And you get around that, that quirky interface where you're like, that doesn't make sense because it does. It, it absolutely does. And Clip Studio was that way and, and Moho is that way. And I could probably save myself two hours worth of trouble if I would just remember that when I first go into one of their products. Mm-hmm. What's your pick, Tim? Well, so I have a couple of picks here and, and one of them is kind of, uh, it should actually be follow-up actually. And um, it's something I heard about uh, through um, a couple of friends on in the Ray Reynolds group, um, uh, Chesare posted it yesterday, and, and um, um, Marin actually knows Marco or knows of Marco, the guy who, who wrote this thing. But it's a product called Creo from uh, Creo Labs. And what it is is a – it looks like a prototyping tool for app development, but apparently it claims to be – it's in beta right now um, – and it says that basically, it's, it, you download the app. It's like a, it's like a, a an IDE, and it's very, but it's designed to be a sort of very graphic tool. So if you're sort of more of an artist type or what have you, um, you can create a prototype app, and you can actually download it onto a device and play it like you like briefs used to do kind of thing in the past, right? I think I mentioned you know back when we first started this podcast and even before that that my guess is that at some point a company like Adobe will come out with app creator 1.0 and it'll, it'll be like a Photoshop or an illustrator type experience where you'll be able to author apps right inside an environment and they do everything for you. And that's sort of where, uh, I think this Creo app is trying to go. Um, I downloaded it yesterday to, to, to take it out for test drive and, and, uh, there's a couple of quick videos, you know, so I was able to create a split view controller app and add, you know, four different, um, tabs to it. Um, you know, play it on, on an iPhone 6 device and get, you know, the split screen uh, view that you get on an iPhone 6 Plus, you know, and very quickly change the background color of the views and that kind of stuff. Things that would normally, you know, in a matter of minutes, I did what it would probably take me like an hour to do in Xcode. Um, I haven't really got into sort of there's, there's you know, um, I want to say REST capabilities. I don't know if it's REST per se. There's database activities you can add in there. Um, there's charting. Um one thing that I have to have to be honest about there's there's a, a pie chart you can drag on out of their their sort of object library and immediately it's buggy like it it doesn't render correctly, which I find comical for beta software. But um, so you you can't you can't reproduce what they show you in the video uh, on on your device. But but it's kind of a cool little authoring tool and um, I think this is sort of the writing on the wall as far as. Um, creating simple apps is going to become the domain of simple apps, uh, uh, simple applications like these sort of like what I call the Adobe app studio 1.0 kind of thing. Right. Have you guys looked at this? I know you and Greg were chatting about it earlier today. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've not, I've not tried the, uh, this tool, but it looks pretty compelling if it can do, you know, even 75% of what it claims to, to do because it, it sort of bridges yeah. that gap where there there are some apps that are so simple that they're really not much beyond like the prototyping where right now it, it's sort of like, well, you have your options of using something like um, InVision or Origami or many other um, prototyping tools that are more sort of designer centric where they, you know, come up with something that's more than just flat screenshots to get the point across. They're adding animation, they're adding, you know, tabability, um, you know, the ability to, to use multi gestures 
And then there's also the other side where it's like, well, it might be just faster to do something like with storyboards, right, at the very least, and, and throw something together in real code. If this bridges right. that gap, I think it could be you know, pretty powerful for, like, think about all of these different kind of situations where you might want an app, but not necessarily want to go through all the rigor of, like, having a mono repo with, you know, 20-some modules sort of thing. It's like, look, I, I really just want this app for, like, my conference, you know, the small conference, or I want an app for, um, you know, my restaurant loyalty program or something, the stuff that, you know, it, to be fair, like it has been sort of like some bread and butter sort of stuff for, um, you know, uh, consulting type development, especially for smaller shops. So, so that is the, the, the one downside, right? Like this is, this is powerful. This is great. Uh, admittedly, it does make it so that there's a hypothetically less, interest in in paying for regular software development services but i think what it does is it means we move up the stack so instead of doing you know yet another you know restaurant menu app you can focus on other things and, and really hone your skills for that and, and from the business side i could definitely see a lot of um you know people who are trying to get their startup off the ground where they're looking for that initial seed funding to be able to hire you know actual software developers uh, I've certainly counseled uh, a few in my day where I said, you know, I, I don't think it's worth the money to pay me what I would want to charge you for even the most basic of apps, right? We, we've talked about right, that on the exactly. show before. Yeah, yeah. Where it's, it's not $30, yep. it's not $500, you know, it's thousands of dollars to make it worth my time and exactly. effort. Um, yeah. Whereas it's like, well, you know, if, if you don't have that money and you're trying to get something in front of a potential investor, using a tool like this might be the way to go where it, it is an actual legitimate app and it's it's not going to do much beyond the bounds of of, of what's available and, and even as this grows uh those boundaries are still going to be there but it might get you over that next hump of like wow yeah we did get the funding so now we are going to go from just you know you know functioning prototype to real legitimate app that someday may be a mono repo with 40 repository modules right <laughs> <laughs> right well what's interesting is, i mean it's actually got ui kit um it sits on top of ui kit so you can have access to all the sort of ui button ui label navigation controllers you know progress views segmented controls all that kind of stuff as well as some of the template apps but and it's got a bunch of functions already built in you know augmented reality address book you know some, yeah, calendars in here, data sets, you know, it's got MySQL integration, it's got SQLite integration, um, it's got uh, HTTP client requests as well. So it covers off a lot of bases. It's interesting to see, like, I'm always curious about these tools. Like, if you start with this tool, are you stuck with it, or does it actually create something that you can actually then go in and edit and modify in a proper Xcode, right? So or are you stuck in this sort of pseudo world of Cordovas and stuff, right? Tammy, any, any experience with these sort of things? No, but I think I have someone who would be interested in using it. Cool. Yeah. What was the name of it again? Creo. C-R-E-O. Okay. So it's at creolabs.com. My second pick is actually a, a prototyping tool, which I, when I was researching this tool earlier today, um, poking around on things, I came across this on um, Twitter called Kite, and the name of the website is Kite app.co and it's another another drag and drop um ide where you can basically build prototype apps and control animations and things like that and has a rather compelling video too 
Um, you know, it's a, and it's a, just another uh, prototyping, prototyping tool, $99. I think, I'm not sure if this is the one that, uh, I remember Joe Shaplinski on um, release notes about a few months ago was talking about a friend who was working on a prototyping app, and, and this was, I think this may be the app that he was talking about. I'm just trying to find out through the release notes, notes, show notes, if this was the one, in fact. So maybe, Joe, if you're listening, you can let us know. But um, this is a rather interesting tool. There's a really compelling video on how you can quickly throw together a prototype app and uh, as well. If you're in the, sort of on the design side of, of, of uh, more than just code as opposed to the coding side, right? Um, have you seen this one before, Jaime? I've seen people talking about this one. I don't know how long it's been around, but it's certainly got a lot of attention recently. And it it looks pretty neat. I'm, I mean, I'm not a designer, so I don't know how this compares to things like, um, Pix8, which actually went away. I think, um, what's a better, uh, principle is a Mac app that does, uh, some similar things. Uh, I've not used that one either myself, so I can't right. compare them directly, but it, it looks uh, very similar in kind of like the way that you can refine the animations has kind of a, like Adobe tool sort of thing, like flash kind of, it's like if you took Flash and Photoshop Timeline, yeah. together, it, it seems like you would kind of get what the UI seems like. Um, I do find it a little amusing that you go way down towards the bottom. One of the features they they point out is that it's built on core animation, which like <laughs> makes sense as a like oh yeah, uh, yeah sure that that's how they're getting these like true to life animations is because you're you know using an editor that probably generates core animation. Uh, stuff under the covers, but as a user, I find that is a very sort of strange thing to tout. Right. That just amused me. It comes with every Mac, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's just another prototype, just another prototyping tool. I could be the name of a podcast. Yeah, and this one's, you know, 99. I don't know if we said how much Creo was. I, I guess it's, it's in beta. Right now it's in beta, so it's it's free. Right, so they haven't done the pricing yet. Yeah, and I, I, I just grabbed it yesterday, so I don't really know if, if uh, uh, when the rubber meets the road, if you actually end up with a proper IPA, you know, that you can upload to the App Store and all that kind of stuff, sign, and away you go, right? And right. and our friend Marin, um, his comment on it was that uh, it has been around, he's been, this guy, uh, the developer, let me just get his name here, so I don't want to call him this guy. Marin was saying it's, it's been around for he's been this guy has been talking about this uh, building this product for a long time. Oh, Marco Bambini, he's the uh, creator of. Um, I'll put a link to his uh, blog in uh, in the show notes as well. Because um, Mar- Marin said he's been talking about this. He's been I guess he's you're somewhere out there in Europe and uh, been talking about this app for a while. So, but I mean it's been in beta for the last year or so and. Uh, if he, if according to his blog, he's going to have regular releases, so we'll see. It hasn't really had much movement since December, so we'll see when the next beta will be out. When did you cool. first hear about it, Jaime? I actually just heard about these two within the past uh, week or so. Um, I'm really? not sure okay. what what caused. Uh, maybe there was like you know a big review somewhere, like you know shootout right. for designer tools that make apps, sort of thing. So I don't know why, if both of these have been around a little bit longer, why these came to attention this week, but it's kind of neat to see them, um, at pricing that's, you know, roughly around sketch. It's not, uh, onerous to try them out. Uh, 
I don't know what the deal is with, with Creo, like if they still have availability for the beta, but uh, Kite has a free trial that you can try out. So you can even see if it even you know does what you, you want it to do before really investing into it. So that's kind of nice. One of the ones we used to use a long while ago was um, Envision. Yeah, I've used that one before. Um, I'm assuming it's still web-based. I don't remember if they have yeah, apps it's, that go with it. All web based. I just looked it up real quick. I couldn't remember the name of it. That's why I was so quiet. So if you had already mentioned it, it's and I missed it. Sorry. I remember that that Envision started out pretty fairly focused on just the prototyping itself, but over the past few years, they've really added the the more cross team collaboration thing, where you can add you know revisions and notes and comments from different people to say, well, I think this should do that, or what if we went with this flow instead. Um, so I kind of wonder if these apps will ever sort of incorporate that sort of thing where it's more than just, you know, sort of lone designer. It's more like design team. And then even beyond just the design team itself, uh, you know, iterating on or perhaps uh, commenting on these designs. It's something to keep a watch on. So I'm just playing with my prototype app that I'm making right now. I'm going to show it. I'll show you guys. There you go. I don't so know. Tim, I- what do you- I remember using Envision. This was like three, four years ago or whatever it was. It was kind of, I didn't know about it until the designer I was working with was like, hey, I need you to take a look at this, this stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of neat. I didn't, I didn't even know such an animal existed, but it was very collaborative because we were able to go in and, and comment on things like, hey, no, that it would be better if this button did that or whatever the case may be. Yeah. The future is now. Tim, are so you, you going to be able to redo Pi Day Countdown in, uh, let's say, Creo? <laughs> Pi Day Countdown is an awesome, awesome app. By the way, it's Pi Day's coming up, folks, so download your copy of Pi Day. Thanks for the plug there. Shameless plug, huh, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's next week, I think, Pi Day, right? I just sent you guys a, a picture of what I just did. What do you think? Oh, I see, I see. Okay. So... You're a superstar. Look at that. I know, eh? I did that in like I did that last night actually, but you're such a cheater. <laughs> no, but I but I just I just put I'm the web view really on there. I'm working really hard over here. Oh yeah, it took me. Oh, I just put the web view in, and <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah. secret to doing these sorts of, of demos. Like um, we used to call it Martha Stewarting because yeah, you yeah, know, when you yeah, watch Martha yeah. Stewart's show, she doesn't. Like, yes, she shows you how to make the cake, but then she already has one that's ready to go. She pulls it out of the oven, so you're not just sitting there waiting around for an hour or two. Oh, my goodness. Like, that's how I make dinner around here. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it's done now, folks. All right, kids. So, if uh, Jaime, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they go? They would go to Twitter, because I am at Dev of the Hair. All right. And Tammy, where people find you? I'm also on Twitter, at Paradox927. All right. What's the name of your new website? Dayoftheindie.com for anyone who is looking for basically anything and everything about the gaming industry, how to make them, how to design them, how to play them. Mm-hmm. Come cool. join us. We just started. Do you teach physics? We, do we teach physics? We Not that kind of physics. <laughs> no, I mean game <laughs> physics and stuff. Everything. We we are a one-stop shop. It uh, It's a I don't know if you guys know Chris Language. I know you two do, but to the listeners out there, he is the brains behind the 3D Apple games by Tutorials. 
And uh, he and I decided to get together and create this resource for our community that has basically, like I said, everything about gaming, how to make them, how to design them, uh, reviews on, on the different tools available, reviews on different games that we might be playing or that other people are playing. So we do hope that you come and stop by and understand that we are new. We're, we're doing everything we can to get content up there it's quickly, but also with you know, we don't just want to throw anything up there. It's not about just being a, a content shop. It's about really putting the time and effort into figuring out what the community needs and wants as far as game development and design. So, yeah, please join us. Join us. <laughs> join us, you will. Join us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And as I said, said at the top of the show, I'm Timitra and I'm T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. And that's the best way to get a hold of me. And so I guess we'll see you guys next week and say goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. You've just experienced the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you'll find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, picks for the episode, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website and write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow the show on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. Uh, did uh, did your household pick up a Nintendo Switch? That's sort of uh, the hot thing, thinking about gaming. No, but, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was, I don't even know. Oh, I, yeah, I actually ventured out of my house today, which is curiously odd for me. But on, on the way back, I was thinking, you know, I should really look into this Nintendo Switch because I'm starting to hear some really good things about it. Yeah, it did really well. Um, Nintendo said that this uh, sold the most in the first couple days out of any console, including their sort of record-smashing Nintendo Wii. So I think that's a positive sign. Yeah. Yeah. So are you going to be getting one? You know, I've I've been going back and forth on this. I think I might wait until um, uh, Mario Odyssey is uh, available. Um, I think if I was to get one right now, I definitely would get Zelda Breath of the Wild. But uh, there's some more... Uh, interesting uh, DLC that's going to come out in the summertime-ish. So it might be kind of nice to, you know, I think Mario's coming out for holiday season. Go pick up a Nintendo Switch, get Mario, get Zelda. They're all patched up and everything. So I can, you know, have uh, maybe the most ultimate experience with each of these. That'll Um, be fun. You know what I discovered today, and I can't tell you because I don't have, I'm on a different computer, so I can't even tell you the link. But so do you know, you remember the old DOS games, right? And the the old Windows games. And uh, you'd have to, you know, if you wanted to play them now, you'd have to go get like something like DOSBox or some sort of emulator to put on the machine. Well, I just discovered today that you don't actually have to do that. They've got 
DOS in a browser window. And I even think that's like uh-huh. the, the website address. I had no idea that existed. I was so thrilled. I was playing a game today that uh, I can't tell you about, but I can, I'll tell you later. How do you, do you, how do you load games into it then? Do you, You'd, do you have to like upload them or whatever? Or? No, no. They have this huge listing of games available to play. And I chose the one I wanted to play because I've been thinking about it for a very long time. And I'm like, and then it was funny because I was actually talking with Chris while I was messing around with it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot how to play this game. <laughs> it's such an easy mm. game too. I'm like, what were the controls? But man, games were like, you know, they had substance back then. They don't feel like yeah. that now. I kind of wonder how the the younger kids, like grandchildren and stuff, will react to these uh, games because... You know, so like nowadays, Dark Souls, that series is is renowned for being, you know, fiendishly difficult and intentionally so. Like it's it's designed around that and the fans love that. Um, But back in those days, every game was Dark Souls. Like every game was like, you know, trying to make it worth your money. You couldn't just beat it in the weekend sort of thing. You you had to get really, really good at it or you had to figure out the one obscure trick to get past a certain level. I kind of wonder how, how culturally, uh, you know, modern video game players uh, re- react to this sort of thing. So, what what platform is Dark Souls on? I think it's on probably all of them. I can't remember. I don't think it's exclusive either one. I think it's a uh, PlayStation Four and uh, Xbox One. Uh, I don't think the Wii has ever had any of the Dark Souls series. Um, maybe the really? Nintendo okay. Switch will get it, but uh, hard hmm. to say. So, you know what I got today? It only, it only took thirty years. Nintendo Switch? <laughs> no. <laughs> Apparently that, well, I was going to ask you about that, what you thought about that. No, I got myself a Stormtrooper helmet. So the, you, you know, did. the dark series of... You know, I saw that picture come through on the, the Slack, and I, I didn't I didn't look closely enough to know what the hell I... I mean, I knew it was a Stormtrooper helmet, but I just didn't know yeah. to what it was part of. You know, I didn't realize it was yours. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, I made one in high school. Like that's how I, I was really impressed with the stormtroopers when I first saw the movie. Right. So I made a stormtrooper helmet out of paper mache in, in high school. And, um, I don't know what my mom did with it. Probably threw it out, but, uh, yeah, I've always wanted to have one of these helmets and you see them in the comic comic cons and stuff like that. And they're all like, you know, $900 or whatever, but bro has this dark series of figures that they've put out really well sculptured figures that, uh, and they, I think. People are going to yell at me at their phones or whatever, but they're seven or eight inches high or whatever. And I buy them for my my uh, stepson Jonathan, who's totally a Star Wars, Star Wars fanatic. But but they had they came out with for for to go along with Rogue One because there are original stormtroopers in that. They came out with a stormtrooper helmet, and it's like you know ninety nine bucks, like no brainer for me. So you know, it's funny so that you this. you mentioned this because my brother just yesterday, as a matter of fact, posted on Facebook the following question. Cylons or stormtroopers. So, mm-hmm. yeah, of course. For I'm, me, it's stormtroopers. Is it really? I, see, I told him, I said, oh, yeah. if you have to ask, you're already dead. But uh, really, stormtroopers. <laughs> well, which Cylons, though? Are you talking about the first generation or the, or the second generation? Uh, he was not specific. Around. He just said. It's tricky. Yeah. It's kind of like fast walkers or slow walkers. Zombies, and, right? And can they float? <laughs> can, oh, oh, Tim! Oh my gosh! I actually got. Oh, you'd be so proud of me! I watched. No. Yes, I watched two, three, maybe 
episodes of the second season of Fear the Walking Dead. Oh, yeah, and you saw them floating in the water, right? I did, and, and my husband was so funny because I'm screaming at the television. I'm like, <laughs> I was like, no, Tim, oh, my gosh. He's, oh, wait till he finds out that I watch it. And I'm, like, yelling. And I'm like, I'm, this, is my, this is my quiet yelling voice. But I was not quiet when I was doing this in real life. And it was so funny. My husband's like, what are you going on about? I said, Tim's going to be so happy. I finally watched this. We can actually have an intelligent conversation about whether or not zombies can float. And he just looked at me. He's like, okay, then. <laughs> yeah, so what is the consensus going- there? Because I, I, I think I, at first blush, fall on the side of, they probably can float because they have all sorts of gases stuck inside exactly. of them. Exactly. Thank you very much, Mr. Lopez. Yeah, They still have exactly. body fat that hasn't, you know, decayed. Like, I'm sure they're... If they decay to a certain point where no, the gases escape the gut or they lose enough fat, like, yeah, then they'll, they'll sink to the bottom. Probably they would, they would, they would, I don't know. They would not, they would just sort of like disintegrate. And- so I, I don't, you've, you've listened to roundabout before. Have you, homie? Yes. You know, the, the big question is, is about the zombie stuff, right? And I'm not going to try and give it and try not to have spoilers here, but for people who haven't made the trip over there and gone to listen to what Tammy and myself on roundabout, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, stop the show, go do it now. We'll wait. Okay. You're back. So the big, one of the big debates we've had over the, over the, the last, you know, couple of months, people say they'll, they'll get a boat and they'll go in the boat. And then I'm like, the first thing I say is, have you not seen, what's the new one called? Or the old one, the second one called Tammy? It Night is of the Living Walkers or whatever. Not, yeah, something like that. Uh, no. <laughs> Fear the Walking Dead. <laughs> Fear the Walking Dead, yeah. It's the second series, and, and it's it's admittedly weaker than The Walking Dead itself. Admittedly. Right? But, I got to say that it got better. I thought it got worse, you know, from yeah. everything I was hearing, but it's actually gotten better. So they're in the hotel now? That's where you are in the show? or No, 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 no. They're, they're well, still on. Thanks for ruining it for me, Tim. They're still on the boat. Oh, <laughs> oh okay, okay. Well, they eventually get off the boat. Come I guess on, they're you know? on the way to the hotel. <laughs> but my point was, my point was, that's totally plausible because when a body falls, when a, a person dies and falls into water, they, the first thing that happens is they sink. But after 24 hours, as you said, Jaime, the gases start to separate out of their bodies and they float back up to the surface, right? So in the in the in the fear of the walking dead you know people fall into the water and then immediately a zombie will sort of float over them and start gnawing at them with their teeth i don't i don't think zombies can swim per se but they certainly can't float right so yeah the swimming thing was more... so not accurate no yeah they yeah. cannot swim <laughs> well okay so no. let, let's go along that route right so we, we've had some argument about the you know the gases inside of the gut and whether that's enough and the you know, how much fat content is still around for, you know, this decomposing zombie. Um, I'm a little unclear on the water solubility of, um, you know, the flesh for zombies, uh, particularly in the, the, the Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead series. Uh, there are other zombie series where the zombie retains some primitive nature of, of what they used to be when they were alive. If Michael Phelps, uh, Olympic gold medalist, becomes a zombie can he swim can zombie phelps swim hmm. that's a good question do you retain any of your abilities when you're a zombie from your previous yeah, life even if it's just like you know you know primitive locomotion he's not really thinking about it but he just you know he's doing the butterfly and he's well it's know, muscle making memory his way right? To you. right right exactly 
That's an interesting, you, you've, you've put an interesting spin on it. I've, you know, if, if any of this goes into the show, I have to apologize again to the listeners because you guys have me on this show now and I just completely derailed it from any normal, more than just code podcast. I apologize. <laughs> well, this is the more than just code part. Oh, this is know? more than just code for sure. Yeah, yeah. Way more, as we like to say. <laughs> the after show is where we can go a little bit, you know, off topic, yeah, even beyond what more than just code would normally encompass. Well, the idea behind the show, if you haven't watched it, is that it's right at the point where the outbreak starts to occur. And nobody knows what's going on, right? Um, and that, as opposed to The Walking Dead, where, you know, Rick falls asleep for, and it was in a coma for six or eight weeks or whatever it was, right? Surprisingly not yeah, so they got this- eaten by zombies. Yeah, well, he was. Yeah, that's true. But then they can't open locked doors, right? That's we've we've established that as as you know, zombie cannon, right? Can't Sorry. open locked doors, but called, they can not... float and swim. That's for sure. Do you know what I have started watching? Ash versus the Evil Dead. Now I don't know if you guys remember Evil Dead from the eighties. There's four movies, which I didn't realize that mm-hmm. there were four movies. But uh, Bruce... really, I only knew there Wait, was one. Four? Yeah, yeah, I thought there was three. So Evil Dead. Return it was it Return of the Evil I wonder Dead? if they're ca- I wonder if they're counting mm. the remake of the Evil Dead in that four. Oh, okay, because Army of Darkness was the last one I remember um, before the reboot that you just mentioned. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I wonder if that's what they're doing. They're counting that, and we, in fact, that's I have to get off of the line here in a minute because that's what we're going to do tonight is uh, watch the Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. So, which is the first movie? Evil Dead. That's the one. Oh, Evil Dead. Okay, in a cabin. Okay. So, so I don't know if you were you at um, three sixty. I did. I think it was the first one I was at. I don't know if they made you at the second one. Uh, no, I. Oh, him. Yeah. The first. No. The yeah. The first. The first. I don't know you've never been there. The first one could require getting on a plane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the first one that first one I went to, there was a guy. I've forgotten his name. Colin something or other. He did a talk on or good app design or good app experience based on Evil Dead on the whole the whole Evil Dead thing about like you know having a you know chainsaw on your arm and that was his that was the the basis of his talk was the, was good app design was was basically like the experience of the Evil Dead that wow it, that that actually does sound familiar i think i might have seen that one <laughs> i think so yeah 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 that might have been the one we one we met yeah sounds fascinating mhm